are going to rebel against the king. Okay, that's great. You're cute. But the opposition came immediately, and Nehemiah dealt with this criticism head on. We see it in verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And we can learn from Nehemiah valuable lessons on how to deal with criticism and opposition. The first thing that we need to do is evaluate the critics. Are they listening to God? Does what they are saying match up with the word of God? If they are, take wise counsel. But these three were not following God, and they were not being sensitive to his voice. They were just being critical. The second thing we do is find the true reason for the criticism. This opposition came because the people in Jerusalem were accomplishing something. They were working together to build the wall. But these guys were not trying to help or make the wall better. It wasn't constructive criticism. You know, if you really want a strong wall, here's what you would do. It's not constructive. They're not trying to help. They're only trying to stop the progress. The third thing that Nehemiah did is respond with a firm answer from the outset. He says, God, God is for us. Furthermore, you guys aren't even part of this operation, so just move along. You're not part of God's people. Go on. Spread your criticism somewhere else. Nehemiah didn't waste time dealing with criticism or blowing up the situation. He just addressed it and got back to work. Nehemiah chose to follow the leading of God instead of the opinion of others. It could be pretty intimidating if three guys, three very important guys from all around you start coming up and criticizing you. But Nehemiah knew his job. He knew his identity of filling the project that God had given him. So he was unwavering in his convictions and in completing God's work. It's often through opposition that the character of Christ is formed in us. It's through testing and facing something that human flesh cannot handle on its own that we become a vessel to display Christ and his spirit in us. And these times provide us with a powerful witness that we would not otherwise have because it demonstrates the power of God to those around us, things that would cripple or knock out someone else because of the help of the Spirit of God, we are sustained, and that's a powerful witness because people realize there's something different. There's a support that I am not aware of. There's something here besides just your own human ability. Let's talk about the critics because we will all deal with them in life. Critics will never understand the spiritual aspects of a project or of a life. Because they see things through a human perspective. So that means that they value and prioritize things differently than someone with a godly perspective. And the requirement of faith is very difficult for a critic. And we have to be careful to guard against a critical spirit. Do we want to improve? Yes, we do. Do we want to seek out and give constructive criticism? Absolutely. Well, what about being a critical thinker and problem solver? Yes, do that. But just being critical? No, 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 no. We must strive for open eyes, discernment, and a positive attitude in place of a critical spirit. 
We can also learn from how Nehemiah faced his critics. Not surprisingly, he faced them with prayer and persistence. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O God, this is his prayer. Hear, O God, for we are despised and turn their reproach. He's talking about these three guys. Turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Verse 5, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Nehemiah's prayer says this, Lord, they're hindering your project, and they need to be held accountable for it. And I'm not going to do it. You're going to have to do it, because I'm a little busy. I'm building the wall. So, Lord, you're going to have to take care of it. Most of the time, when we think of praying for our enemies, we think of forgiveness and love, and that is always applicable, always. However, in this case, the enemies persisted in making Nehemiah's job difficult, and he can't ignore it. He takes his problem to the one who can fix it. One of the basic things that they teach you in physics and then in engineering school, it's the first lesson day one is Newton's third, three laws of motion. And the third law basically says this, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Basically, if you hit a wall going really fast, the wall's going to hit you back pretty fast as well. It also could be summed up in one word, and that is consequences. When you do something, something's going to happen. If you hit your brother, your brother's probably going to hit you back. So Nehemiah saw that this was a problem, but he didn't try to fix it in his own strength. The actions of these three men caused a reaction, and he took it to the Lord and gave him control of the problem. Lord, these are their actions, and I hand it over to you. This is your project, and you are going to have to take care of it. And we never see in Nehemiah the bitterness that results from a heartful of unforgiveness. He doesn't go on and tell us how awful and terrible these three guys are. There's no bitterness with him. So he was a forgiving person. He handed it over to the Lord and went back to his job. Nehemiah took care of himself and made sure that he was right before God, and then he left the problem with God. And his enemies didn't get the satisfaction of distracting Nehemiah from his work on the wall. Nehemiah fought his battles through prayer. Sometimes we tend to fight our battles by just shouting louder. But if you want to stop an argument, the quickest way to do it is to shut your mouth, which is a very difficult thing to do sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not for you all. It's, so, it's difficult for me sometimes. Nehemiah trusted that God would take care of his problems. So he focused on the wall and let God take care of the three problems that kept showing up. And what great faith and trust this was. It's a beautiful picture of Nehemiah's relationship with God, that he knew the Lord would take care of him. So he trusted the Lord to lay it at his feet and to walk away. After his prayer, verse 6 tells us this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. It was halfway done. For the people had a mind to work. Well, what happens next? Well, the opposition to the project gets worse. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, it says, But it came to pass that when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites, the group is getting bigger, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. If you notice in this verse, spiritual progress 
was a threat to them. If anyone is ever a critic of the Lord doing a work in your life and of you growing in the Lord, that is not of God. That is a critical spirit, and that is something that must be avoided. Verse 8, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Now, I read this, and I just think, this poor guy, like, they can't catch a break. You know, the guys show up, they take it to the Lord, they work on the wall, the guys show up again, they keep working on the wall, and the guys just keep showing up, and they're showing up with more people. But this was Nehemiah's response in verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. It's not just Nehemiah now, it's all of the people are praying to God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. The opposition's getting worse, more people are showing up, and they're saying that they're going to come and fight us. So they respond with a common sense reproach, response. Excuse me. And you may say, well, where's their faith? Well, Chuck Swindoll, who wrote the book, puts it this way. Do you fear someone breaking into your house? Yes, you should trust God to protect you. And in the end, we do have to trust God to protect us. But you should also lock your doors if you're afraid someone is going to break into your house. Because the truth of the matter is that the Jews in Jerusalem couldn't defend against a coordinated attack. There weren't enough of them. They weren't an army. They were just refugees who had come back home and were trying to start up their life. They would have to trust God in that situation. In the event of an attack, they were going to have to trust God. But Nehemiah took action to deter gangs of their enemies from attacking the workers or destroying their progress on the wall. If they're going to send a little band of guys to come attack this group walking on the wall, we're going to be ready for them. Nehemiah was a prayer warrior, and he was also a strategic planner. And what a great combination that is. The faith to rely on God and the planning to be ready for anything that would happen. In addition to external strife, Nehemiah also had to deal with problems within the group of people he was leading. And again, I say, this guy cannot catch a break. The problem was discouragement. Because day after day, the critical words of the enemy began to take their toll. And we can't constantly be exposed to something without it rubbing off on us. The people didn't necessarily want to be around critics. They didn't ask for all of the people around them to be critical of this project. And we don't really know that they sought out the company of those who were preaching negativity. They might have not went to hang out on a Saturday night with Sam Ballot and Tobiah, but they were just there. It was the situation. These guys were just there being critical. But we must be aware of potentially harmful attitudes and situations around us and take care to guard against them. It's not necessarily sin as we would usually think of it. It could just be a negative job environment. It could be friends or family who are materialistic or who aren't um, don't have a mind for the kingdom of God and for the things of God. Some of those things we can't change. We can't change if the job that we're in is a negative environment, but we can take precautions to protect ourselves and take care to retain only God's truth and not let incorrect habits or ways of thinking take root. How do we do that? Through prayer, through the word, and through spending time with God. If we don't spend time with God, his principles don't rub off on us. So then it's only going to be the principles that we're around. If we're around negative thinking and we never take time to say, Lord, what do you think? 
and start listening to what he has to say about it, all we're going to have is negative thinking. We don't spend time with him. We're not going to develop that. Chapter 4, verse 6 tells us that at this time of discouragement, they were at the halfway point of building the wall. Well, what was it that caused their discouragement? They outline it in chapter 4 in verse 10. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. We're weak, is what they're saying there. And there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. They're saying we're tired, Nehemiah. We've been building this wall, and we're tired. Physical exhaustion also takes an emotional toll. There is much rubbish. My mom likes to say junk. There's a lot of junk. They lost the vision, and all they could see was what was broken. Instead of opportunity, they just saw a mess. And we are not able to build the wall. They lost their confidence. Discouragement caused them to doubt both their own ability and even God's ability to complete the project. Verse 11, they go on. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. We're going to spring up on them, and we're just we're going to kill them and tear down the wall, and it's going to be done, and we won't have to worry about these Jews in Jerusalem anymore. So there was a loss of security in verse 11. They were scared, plain and simple. These guys are saying they're going to come out of nowhere and kill us. They were scared. So what does Nehemiah do to combat discouragement? Well, I can tell you what he didn't do. He didn't ignore it because it's kind of like ignoring a flat tire. You can keep going. You can drive on a flat tire if you want, but it's going to have to be fixed eventually, and you're probably not going to get anywhere very fast. Verse 13 is Nehemiah's response. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. The first thing he did was united the families, and that's a message all by itself. And he gave them a goal of preservation. Because up to this point, the families have been scattered, working. You know, we need Bob to go and work on that part of the wall, and his family's over here. They're scattered. So why did Nehemiah use family unity to combat discouragement? Because our homes should be a basic source of encouragement. The family was the first unit that God ordained and that God designed. It wasn't the church. It was the family. And it should be a refuge and a safe place from the dangerous and discouraging world around us. Because strong, united families supporting each other are a force to be reckoned with. And Nehemiah had the wisdom to understand this, and I pray that we do as well. In verse 14, he goes on, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. This is an inspiring battle speech. It's a call to arms. And I think of this as Nehemiah's Winston Churchill moment. Because Churchill was a great motivator of people in a crisis. In one of the worst wars that this world has ever seen, he was able to motivate the people of Britain to fight against what seemed like impossible odds. And we see that in Nehemiah as well. Nehemiah lifts their eyes spiritually. He reminds them of how great God is. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible. And it makes me think of the word magnify. 
And it reminds me of a magnifying glass. Usually when someone says magnify, that's the picture that I get as a magnifying glass. And I'll use this word in worship or in prayer. Lord, I magnify you. But am I really understanding what that means to magnify the Lord? Magnifying means making something bigger or bringing it into focus. So that's all you see. When I magnify God, the point is to bring him into focus to me so that way I see him instead of the situation. And most of the time, this is a mental process of reminding myself who the Lord is and what he's done. It's making my mind understand how great my God is. Nehemiah magnified God to the people. Remember the stories that we've heard of when the Jews came into the promised land. Guys, remember who we're serving and who's looking out for us. He magnified the Lord so their situation didn't seem as impossible as it was. Well, how do we, rem- how do we magnify God? We remember his words and his promises. This could be specific things that he's spoken to you and promises from his word. His word says what he has promised, he will do. He will bring his work to completion. The good work he's begun in you, it's one of my favorite verses. He is able to complete it, and he will complete it. Call to mind those promises. Remember who he is. The whole point of our relationship with God is us getting to know who he is. So in those times of trouble, when we need a healer, when we need strength and support, we know him as our strength and our support and our healer. Discouraged people usually focus on one thing, and that is themselves. But fighting discouragement is helped along by turning our attention somewhere else. And in verse 14, we see inspiring Nehemiah, calling the people to action, and turning their focus from themselves back to the project. In verse 15, it goes on, And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, God ruined all of their plans, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. Verse 16, And it came to pass from that time forth, that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and whatever that is, the haberdons? Hmm. Whatever that is, we've all learned a new word today. They were holding it. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. So from that time forth, half of the guys are building the wall, half of the guys are holding the swords. They're ready to go in case of an emergency. The result was that the progress on the wall returned. The people were inspired, and they were instructed to fight. So again, we see faith in action, that Nehemiah motivated them quite literally, if necessary, to fight the good fight of faith. Verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. Verse 20, In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. So he says, guys, we're spread out. It's a big city. It's a big project. We're all separated from one another. But when you hear the trumpet at a certain part of the wall, you know that's the rallying point, that there's a problem over there, and we're all going to go fight on that part of the wall. The principle here is don't fight alone. We need each other. God not only gave us himself, he gave us a family of believers to support and uphold us. 
and to fight for us, hopefully not with us, to fight for us. Think of Elijah's discouragement in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's detailed. When did it come? It came when Elijah felt alone. When he sits, he's being chased by Jezebel. Everybody's being murdered who worships the Lord, and he is crying out to God, God, I'm alone. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm out of my home. I'm out here in the wilderness. His discouragement came when he was all alone. And what did the Lord do? The Lord provided for him. And then the Lord gave him a friend in ministry. It's shortly after this time that Elisha joins up with Elijah. And after this, Elijah's ministry sees its greatest days during this partnership. We were made to work together for the glory of God. I need the Lord, and I need you too. The next issue that Nehemiah faced was dealing with people and their money. And oh, Lord, help us all. Just like God has a plan for how we live our lives, he also has a plan for how we handle our finances. Because he calls us to be good stewards, to have faith, and to trust him to take care of us financially. In chapter 5, there's a strike on the wall building project. What? A strike in the Bible? I didn't even know they had unions back in the day. But there is a strike. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 5 gives us the situation. In verse 1, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. They're fighting with one another. Verse 2, For there were, there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. We've got a lot of people to try to provide for. Verse 3, some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth, or famine is what they're saying there. Verse 4, there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards. We cannot make money. We're having to borrow money all over the place. Verse 5, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. We've mortgaged our home, we've mortgaged our land, and we cannot keep up with all of the taxes that are being levied on us. The reasons for the complaints were these. There was a famine, verse 3. Verse 4, they were taxed enough already. Verse 5, the entrance rates are too high. And these sound like pretty modern problems, I think. Eventually, the people are forced to give up their land, and they're sold into slavery to their creditors. And we see Nehemiah's response in verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. This is justified anger. It's not just emotion. Because the reason is the people weren't following the law of Moses. And we find that law in Exodus to Deuteronomy in our Bibles. And this law is what told them how to live with one another. If you ever wonder if interpersonal relationships are difficult... Exodus to Deuteronomy in your Bible is dealing with how people interact with each other. So yeah, it can be kind of hard to get along sometimes, especially with a bunch of people. But God outlined the way that the people of Israel should treat each other. And it was supposed to be different from anyone else. 
Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 to 20, and this is in the NIV. He instructs them, Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Verse 20, You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. Why? So that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. Success would be from the Lord, and it would be obvious to other nations. Because other nations, if they wanted to make money on a loan, they had to charge interest to the guy that they were loaning it to. But the Jews weren't supposed to do that. Everyone else made their money through charging interest and enslaving each other. But the Lord said, not so among my people. You guys are going to be successful differently. So Nehemiah's anger was at the law of God being broken. Verse 7, he goes on, Then I consulted with myself. He thought before he spoke. He was praying and listening to God's voice. And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. He went to the ones that were responsible. And in this case, it was the ones with the money. So he lays out his case against them in verses 7 to 9. And said unto them, Ye exact usury or interest, every one of his brother, and I set a great assembly against them. Verse 8. And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Notice their response. Conviction was working. They knew they were doing wrong, that they had broken the law. And Nehemiah was calling them to task. Verse 9, also I said, it is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Guys, we were, we're better than this. We were instructed not to do this. Shouldn't we fear the Lord and his law? Nehemiah confronted sin with rebuke and with the word of God. And sin must not only be confronted, it must be corrected. Jesus explains this principle to us in speaking of the man with the unclean spirit, that it wanders, and if it finds no place, where does it go? It goes home. If it can't find anywhere else to go, let's just go back where we came from. If the home is swept clean and no protection, if nothing has changed, if nothing's been corrected, he goes and gets seven friends, and they all have a house party. Nehemiah not only confronted the sin, but he outlined a plan to stop and correct what was happening. Confronting it is only the first step. Correction is the next step. In verse 10, he outlines the plan. I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Stop charging interest. Stop these unlawful practices. Don't enslave your brothers and your sisters. Nehemiah eliminated the wrongdoing first. Verse 11, he outlines the rest of the plan. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. He's telling them what they need to do here. Next, Nehemiah gave the instructions. Now is the time to correct sin. Once it's confronted, there's no time like the present to correct it. A prompting from God to deal with sin and error must be followed immediately. Otherwise, we end up tolerating sin. We talked about Eli last week, 
and his hesitancy in confronting the sin of his sons. And it led him to tolerating terrible sins in his own house. And eventually the judgment of God came on his house because he did not confront and correct the sin of his sons. Verse 12 of Nehemiah goes on to say, Then said they, We will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. So Nehemiah went public. The guys have the right response. All of the nobles, they say, we're sorry, we're going to do it, and we're not going to charge interest anymore. We're not going to break the law of God again. So what does Nehemiah do? Okay, we're going to go public, guys. Not on the stock market, but he upped the ante for the nobles to correct their error. You say you're going to do what's right? Okay, would you repeat that, please? For the record, and in front of this very large group of people, so we can all hold you accountable to what you're promising. He wasn't, they weren't just making a promise to men, but they were taking an oath before God to right the wrong and to follow his laws from now on. Nehemiah calls the priests. He calls the spiritual leaders of Israel to take, bear witness to this oath, that it's an oath before God. Verse 13, also I shook my lap and said, So God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. This demonstrated how serious of an issue this was. Nehemiah doesn't shy away from speaking plainly. If you don't hold true to your promise before God, may God shake you out of your house, out of your job, and nothing you do be successful. That's pretty serious. It's sometimes easier to sugarcoat difficult words, but Nehemiah resisted the temptation. And what was the end result? Peace returned and the wall was built. Nehemiah's time as a builder organizing the project of building the wall gives us more character bricks to add to, the, to building the walls of our lives. He focuses on the solutions. Nehemiah motivated people by lifting their eyes. He encouraged them by focusing their eyes on the Lord. How to deal with opposition, criticism, and discouragement. Nehemiah dealt with opposition head on. He evaluated his critics. Are they speaking the truth? Of God's word, or are they just trying to discourage me? He dealt with criticism. He took it to the Lord and left his problem at the Lord's feet, and also dealing with discouragement. He united families, and he got them focused on how great God was, and that God was going to sustain them through this project. That's, I think, the most amazing thing that has really come out to me looking at Nehemiah is every area of his life, Every problem that he had, he always took it to the Lord and left it there. He did have a plan to fix it, and he listened to what the Lord said whenever the Lord gave him instruction to fix it. But all of his problems, the major things, he trusted the Lord to take care of. So he dealt with it in prayer, and he left it there, left it for the Lord. Lord, there's bigger things that I have to deal with. Lord, I can't change the king's heart. You're going to have to do it. Lord, I can't take care of these three guys who are criticizing us and trying to stop the work. You're going to have to do it. He recognized his own limits and trusted the Lord to take care of what needed to be taken care of. The last thing is taking care of sin. 
Nehemiah demonstrates for us how to deal with sin, both in a group and in our own lives, the principles that he used when confronting the sin of the group of the people of Israel can also be used for us personally, that we must confront sin and correct it and not back down. We have to be accountable to someone as well. Next week, we'll wrap up our study of Nehemiah by looking at his final role as a governor in Jerusalem. But I think let's just take a moment, if you would stand with me, to let the Lord place this in our hearts of these character traits that Nehemiah demonstrated, that he would help us to deal with life with the same wisdom and the same insight that Nehemiah had, that we would follow his example. Would you pray with me? Lord.